all and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry. Clay Lowry serves as the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. For today's episode, I wanted to give a preview on the upcoming Australian elections, which take place on Saturday, May 21st. To go into some depth on these elections, I will be joined by Charles Edel, who is the Australian Chair and Senior Advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is one of the prominent think tanks here in Washington, D.C. As a bit of scene setting, Let me do a few basics on the Australian elections that Charles can easily expand and clarify. Australia is actually electing its House of Representatives, and whichever party obtains the majority will form a government that will be led by the Prime Minister. The current Prime Minister is Scott Morrison, who leads the Liberal National Coalition and has been in that position since 2018. His main challenger is the head of the Labour Party, Anthony Albanese, who had served as Deputy Prime Minister when Labour was last in the majority, which was roughly about a decade ago. Those are just some quick basics, but maybe, Charles, you can take it further and walk us through the process that's going to be happening. Give us some background on the major political parties. Australian Elections 101 for this upcoming election. Sure, Clay. Thanks very much for uh, having me on. And let's just say at the outset, I don't have to do anything else. You've already kind of scoped this just perfectly. The thing uh, that's worth noting, particularly for an American audience, right, because we generally understand, and by we, I mean I generally understand parliamentary systems not quite as well as presidential systems, is, as you said, the election on Saturday uh, is a federal election for the lower house. Whoever has the majority or whoever can cobble together a coalition will get to form the government, both uh, select the prime minister and the cabinet that he brings with him. So that will be on Saturday. You know, Australians love to bet. Uh, so we've been watching kind of polling on a weekly basis going back for more than a year. And if you were a betting man or woman, you would bet that Labor's going to take this one because they've been ahead on weekly polls for about a year and a half at this point straight. But one thing to note is elections are elections and they're always really competitive. So the last time there was a federal election in Australia was in May of 2019, and we had more or less a very similar dynamic. The coalition that is the Liberals plus the National Party had been in government. People seemed to be tiring of them, and Labor had been ahead in the polls for the better part of a year. And everyone predicted that Labor would win, and yet, lo and behold, the Liberals uh, held on. So it's quite hard to predict at this point, just like in an American election, popularity and kind of the, the top candidates matter not so much as the Electoral College. Same in the Australian election, that it's a seat-by-seat fight really kind of around the country for this. But again, if you're deep in the weeds on Australian uh, politics, as I as I am, as Australia chair here at CSIS, there are some differences uh, between 2019 and now, which uh, resonate in some ways with American politics too, that in 2019, Labor ran a big campaign, right? They were a transformational party. They were going to make big changes on, on climate, with the economy, with social safety net. And when they lost, the kind of internal churn was maybe that had been the wrong approach. So this election has become really 
don't vote for the other guys and we're a competent manager. That is, it is not a large transformational agenda that Labor's running on. They say, particularly on the foreign policy and national security front, we are as similar as we can be. Uh, this is just a referendum on if you think the guys in power are doing a good job or not. And we make the argument, says Labor, that we'll do a more competent job. So I get your point that this is not a presidential election. So in the United States, we focus very much on the two people that are running against each other, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, for instance. In Australia, you're, you kind of got to focus a little more on the parties, what they stand for and so forth. But we do have, of course, the two individuals, Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese. The Liberal Nationalist Party is, I assume, the more conservative party. The Labor Party, I assume, is the more uh, progressive party. Anything in particular about either of those two candidates or those two parties that we should kind of be focused on from a, a little more of an ideological spectrum? I completely got what you said, which is Labor's not trying to run this on some big ideas thing. They're trying to say we are the more competent managers, but maybe a little more on either ideologies or the two individual candidates. Yeah. So uh, actually, before answering your question, Clay, let me just back up a little bit, because one of the things that I think is really important for us to note as Americans who live in a democracy looking at another democracy is you're right. Parties do matter more uh, and they matter more for two or three particular ways, which are important to note. So the first is there aren't primaries in the sense that we have them in America. There's pre-selection. The party chooses who's going to kind of be the top candidate, which means that being a good party member gets you further and means there's more unity and message within the major parties generally than there is here in America. The second thing is we talked about the coalition. So you're right. Liberals are the party of the right. It's a bit confusing for us, but they're the party of the right and they have a coalition with the national party. But even within labor, which is its own party, there are coalitions. There's kind of left of center labor, right of center labor. And because it's coalition government, because it's cabinet government, there's much more back and forth with the cabinet than there is from top down in the American system. So I think it is really important to note that there are some major differences, including kind of mandatory voting and ranked choice voting, which means that there's an incentive for most, not all, candidates to kind of play to the broad center as opposed to the left or right of their own parties. Okay, sorry, that was my throat clearing about why the systems are different. In terms of the two candidates at the top, first of all, while I just said our systems are different, in some ways, the Australian system begins to look more like the American system, that they've been focusing much more on personality over the last couple of years. And this campaign in and of itself has really become a referendum to a certain degree on do you or do you not like Scott Morrison? In fact, this has been Labor's point over and over again that we don't like him, he's not trusted, so they say. And in fact, uh, this message has resonated so much that Scott Morrison himself said, this is not a personality contest. I'm a bulldozer. You know what you're going to get. You know, the difference between the two is Scott Morrison himself, who had been a, a minister, uh, had been a cabinet member before he became prime minister in a spill, right? That's an intra-party conflict when he became prime minister, having taken over for Malcolm Turnbull in August of 2018, was elected in his own right uh, in May of 2019. He's a deeply religious man. He's a Pentecostal Christian. That actually matters quite a lot in his relations with the Pacific, uh, where you have a church playing a large role. He is someone who is very forthright in his language and has both been embraced and critiqued for that. And critically, he was treasurer before he became PM. Anthony Albanese, 
who is the head of the Labour Party, the party of the left. Comes from a, a left background. He was an organizer before he went into politics, but has been in government for a long time, was a cabinet member and a unifying figure in a time of a fair amount of divisiveness within the Labour Party when they had their own spills. He's Catholic, he's an organizer, he comes from the Labour part of the Labour uh, government. And again, you know, in that popularity contest that everyone pitches themselves towards, who's the more average bloke, who's the one that you want to have a beer with? People seem to be gravitating towards him on this. But again, the vote is about more than just personalities at the top. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And again, as a, all right, as the dumb American, basically thinking about a parliamentary system. So you see some countries where obviously you have lots of different parties. We think about England, you have two major parties, but the Liberal Democrats can play kind of an important role. All right. So the third party here is, I guess, the Green Party led by Adam Bant. And then you mentioned the, the interesting point about preferences voting, which I don't frankly understand very well, but or ranked voting. Is it possible that the Green Party could rise up and do better in these elections than they've done in the past? And if so, does this ranking kind of affect the Labor Party more or the National Coalition more? The answer to all your questions is maybe except for how ranked choice voting works, which is the subject for another podcast because it's quite complex. Look, in terms of the Green Party, to answer your last question first, I think this ultimately will matter more for government than it does for Green. So climate is a really interesting issue because it pulls quite high across Australian society as an issue of concern. And yet both parties have not made it particularly ambitious policy growth, although there is some clear differentiation where the coalition is and where labor is. Labor is generally seen as more progressive on this. But again, you know, in that last election in 2019, some of the more ambitious climate goals that labor had set, and then when they lost some of the bigger rural constituencies, that was seen as maybe a demand signal to scale back some of the more ambitious policies that they had had. Now, even with that said, there are some clear differences between the coalition and labor, and even bigger differences between labor and the Greens on that. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting in this election is you talk about independent votes, but there are even kind of breakaway factions within some of the parties. So we've seen in Australian politics the rise of the teal voter in this election. Now, if you think of the color teal, right, it's kind of Somewhere between the two, it's not quite blue, not quite green. And that is to say blue, it's really confusing as an American. Blue is the color of the party on the right, right? So it's liberals color. But if you are a liberal, you generally support businesses, a lot of oil and gas in the past, but that doesn't really sit with how people think about where environmental policy needs to go. So particularly in urban wealthier districts, there's been critique of the liberal parties for being really insufficiently ambitious on their climate policy. And we've seen the rise of teal candidates who are traditionally, again, liberal voters, but are saying that we really have not gone far enough on environmental policies. Now, in terms of uh, the Green vote itself, it's not going to be a major vote. Uh, Adam Brandt is the leader of the Greens. They would probably end up caucusing with, if they needed to, labor. They're more naturally inclined to do so than with the liberals. And where they're kind of tracking on environmental policies writ large, in terms of their economic policies and their foreign policies, they're, they're quite far apart. And I think it's a lesson for labor that the last time they were in the seat, they had to form minority government, right? That is, they didn't have a simple majority in and of themselves. They formed it with the Greens, 
and that hamstrung their policies. Uh, it made them have to navigate kind of compromises, but also was pretty unpopular from their perspective. So I think there's every uh, possibility that Greens will play a role in the government, uh, particularly if it's a labor government that's elected. But whether or not they uh, actually can do the horse trading kind of set the rules, I, I think that's a much lower chance there. Well, thank you very much. And actually, you did a great job because I, that was going to be one of my follow-up questions was on kind of some of the green issues that were involved in these elections. But you kind of covered that. I do want to move, move to foreign policy, but let me uh, ask you one more question on the election issues out there. The big issue, of course, on, on almost any election is the economy. So in Australia right now, inflation is rising, as it is on a lot of other places. You have rising indebtedness, skyrocketing housing prices, and probably fiscal deficits. At the same time, Australia is mainly a commodity exporter, so I assume the rising prices, at least on commodities, is helping them a bit. but China is slowing down, uh, as we've seen from the lockdown and so forth. So that probably arms Australia somewhat. Is there any big differences on the economic views of the two major parties? Or is it kind of go back to your kind of theme, which is you're trying to show you're a little bit different, but you're really trying to show you're actually competent and you won't screw things up? Yeah, you know, cost of living uh, is a major issue in this campaign, uh, as it is generally. Australia did suffer an economic downturn, which it had not done previously, although it's bouncing back quite fast. Actually, the unemployment numbers just came out and they're uh, looking quite low at this point. If you're inclined to vote for liberals, you're saying, look, it's all because of our terrific economic stewardship under them. But the cost of living is a real uh, issue, and that comes out both in how they think about aged care and aged care facilities, but also in home prices. I can tell you, having lived in Sydney, uh, home prices are astronomical. And one of the economic issues that's come out is younger people have to delay forever, you know, buying their first home because it takes so long. Now, in Australia, you have a superannuation fund, right? Your retirement saving, uh, which the government puts aside. You cannot touch it until you reach a certain age. And that's actually been pretty good for the Australian average citizen. One of the things that we've seen in the last couple of days is Josh Frydenberg, who's the coalition treasurer, has floated uh, not only cash payments to households to help them deal with rising commodity prices, but also that you can potentially raid your own superannuation fund to help pay for this. You know, on the other side, Labor shadow treasurer Jim Chalmers has said that he wanted to look at more quality investments um, and raise targets on multinationals, i.e. tax some more, make sure they're all paying their fair share of the tax, and said that he was open to running higher deficits than normal. You know, the, the interesting thing, Clay, is I actually think that there's a similar theme on both the economy and foreign policy, that it is who do you think is the better steward of the government? And so we've seen kind of numbers going towards the liberals and towards labor, depending on how you define this. I mean, generally, liberals get a higher ranking uh, among the Australian people for how they think of economic management. But keeping the cost of living low actually goes towards labor. Uh, so you can uh, see that there's, a, I mean, it's certainly an issue at play here. One of the two main issues, two or three main issues, I think uh, people are going to kind of flip the switch on on Saturday. Very interesting. All right. And so let's move a little bit to foreign policy issues. So I got to believe the biggest issue is China. Australia and China have had some tension over the last few years. That actually didn't seem to be the case before that, but the last few years have risen. You know, I know there's probably some fallout from the AUKUS deal that happened last year, and then just recently China having kind of this much bigger role in the Solomon Islands, which I know is near Australia, and 
as a kind of almost like a defense screen type of thing. If labor wins, is there a shift on how to think about China? I think that, you know, even Prime Minister Morrison is probably, I assume, basically saying you're soft on China as an attack point. How do they, how are they going to deal with China, I guess? Whichever party comes in, but I guess labor would be more interesting at this point, Duncan. So they would be the new party. Well, uh, they're only more interesting because we probably know less about where they would go. And <laughs> you're exactly right, Clay, that, uh, you know, uh, the Aussies are talking about this election as uh, potentially being a khaki election, i.e. one that uh, kind of revolved around the military, who wears khaki dress, right? You know, this goes in both ways. Uh, you know, generally voters rank the coalition as being better on national security and foreign policy. And they have said exactly what you said, that uh, you don't want to trust an untested uh, set of hands when things have become just that much more fraught around our region. You know, the rejoinder by labor is we don't have any major differences in policies. Look, they've made a mess of things and look at the Solomon Islands, as you said. So it's kind of gone both ways on this. But, you know, the listing of issues that you talked about, about AUKUS and about the Solomon Islands is really front of mind. And the bigger story here, I think, is that the conversation about China has changed wholesale in Australia over the last three or four years. And that's for a, a number of different reasons. I mean, first of all, when we first moved there in 2017, the issue that was really making the rounds was Chinese interference inside of Australia's domestic political system, right? There have been a, a couple of sensational news stories about you know, Chinese-associated businessmen handing out cash to Australian politicians who would then parrot their lines. Uh, and some of those politicians had to leave parliament because of this. And that was just the tip of the iceberg, right? More things began to come out about kind of influence operations with businessmen, with politicians kind of across Australia. And I say this not because it's like the fun domain of national security wonks like me, but because my neighbors would ask me about this all the time. There was clear consciousness and tracking on this issue of interference inside of Australia. You know, the other thing, too, is approximately 40 percent of Australian trade goes up to China. Right. That's an enormous amount of advanced economies. It's probably the largest amount that goes to China in the world. And yet when China got angry with Australia, and there were a lot of reasons why they got angry, you know, not only for saying that Huawei you know, couldn't build out their 5G systems, for passing foreign interference laws. Of course, that kind of begs the question, if you're angry that a country is passing foreign interference laws, why are you so angry? Is it because you're trying to interfere? But you know, the, the larger point here was that as COVID started, the Australians called for an independent inquiry into the origins to make sure something like this never happened again. And Beijing went nuts. The economic hammer really came down on Australia. And so there were kind of slowdowns or sanctions or kind of, you know, that, that imports, you know, in timber, coal, wheat, wine, uh, rock lobster, you know, it really affected the Australian economy in a very visible way to many Australians. Now, you just said, Clay, and you're absolutely right, that because global commodity prices increased, the Australians more or less ended up being okay. Not every sector, not every industry, but you know they were more or less okay. But it was very clear what the Chinese were trying to do. They were trying to extort them economically to have them change their politics on this. And this really culminated in the Chinese embassy in Canberra gave out a list of 14 demands the Australian government. If you want to reset relations, here are 14 demands. And they're actually kind of extraordinary. Everything from your parliamentarians should stop criticizing us. 
your press should stop writing anything bad about us. You shouldn't have independent think tanks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And if you do that, then we can be friends again. Of course, this is antithetical to any free and open society. And I put that in the background because when Scott Morrison uh, met with the other G7 leaders in Rome, he brought a list of these 14 points, which had been out in the open, had been in the Australian press and said, this is what we're concerned about, right? Uh, not so much what is happening inside of China, bad as it is, but they are trying to silence, critique, dissent, and analysis within the West and among democracies. So this is really widespread uh, and known in Australia. And I say that because there is no space politically for either party to quote unquote, go soft on China, to reset relations to where they once were. In fact, Anthony Albanese said, if there's a criticism I have of the current government, it isn't about any of the substance. And he was implying instead that it was about the tone and maybe the, over the overly ideological language that he thought was a problem. So I don't think there's any major differences. And in fact, Labour said there are none on budget, on AUKUS, on the Quad. What might be different is how they develop particular policies, particularly around Southeast Asia and the Pacific at this point. Well, that's very interesting. And let me, I guess, go one step further. So obviously, sitting here, I'm in the United States. Australia is usually seen as one of the U.S.'s key allies. On a lot of issues. I mean, as we speak, I think Joe Biden is jumping on an airplane to go to South Korea and to Japan. And as part of that trip, he will be meeting with the Quad, which of course includes India, Japan, and Australia. If Labor wins, is there going to be a change in how Australia deals with uh, the United States, or is it going to be a little bit of the bicycle will just keep rolling along the track? Sure, there'll be a change because they're going to put their own stamp on things. And even though they've critiqued the government, uh, they haven't been exactly explicit on where they would land on any of number of things. So yeah, there will be a change and that will reset things. But there won't be a fundamental shift in the U.S.-Australian alliance. And there certainly won't be a shift in Australia's ongoing kind of expansion of how it deals with its neighbors through the Quad, through its outreach to Southeast Asia and the Pacific as well. So you know, one of the things, Clyde, that's really interesting is the timing of the Quad meeting that's going to be happening in Tokyo, right? Only the second time all the leaders meet face-to-face -face, is absolutely horrible to the Australians. So they have election on Saturday. You got to get on that plane on like Sunday night or Monday morning to make it up for a Tuesday meeting. And yet it's unclear if there actually will be a government by that point, if they will have counted the votes, if there will be a clear majority or not. And so the Aussies are working kind of overtime to figure out what they might do. I mean, if there's a clear winner, uh, if it's Scott Morrison, he'll be right back there. If it's Anthony Albanese, he'll be there wanting to introduce himself to his counterparts. And if there is no clear winner, then we'll see the Australians, I think, getting a little bit creative, either Morrison going in caretaker mode, maybe bringing someone uh, with labor from him. But I, I do think that you're going to see a lot of continuity starting in that meeting. But then also, uh, you know, either winner in the Australian system will want to have a bit of a reset from where they've been and put their stamp on their own uh, set of policies. Very interesting. And also, of course, for not just an American audience, a lot of countries around the world where you have an election, and then you have a, a period of time before the inauguration. Australia, it's the kind of the same system, I think, that you have in the UK, which is uh, you have an election, and the next day, whoever won is back is either back in power or now newly in power. So uh, there is no period of time when things happen, I guess. If you don't mind, I'm just going to say, like, you know, 
for, for those of us who kind of watch the Australian system, there actually is a little bit of a difference perhaps. The way that it happens is once we know who the winner is or which coalition of parties can form a government, right? It's a kind of a two-step process, right? They go to the governor general, actually it is quite like the UK system, who is the royal representative and say that they're going to form government, they are sworn in, and then they, after intra-party voting, come up with their cabinet. Now, generally that's a process that takes a week or weeks. We don't have time for that if we want leaders up in Tokyo. So actually, we're already seeing that, uh, you know, if it's liberal, if it's the coalition government, we know who's going to be up there. If it's a labor government, they are saying that they're going to fast forward this in a way that we haven't seen since 1972 and get sworn in and get at least the foreign minister and the prime minister on the plane. Thank you very much for the clarification. Okay, so now I'm going to do the unfair thing to you, Charles. So we are recording this on Thursday, May 19th, and it will be released Monday, May 23rd. The election, unfortunately, is between those two dates, is on Saturday. We don't know if there will be a declared winner by then, but there's a good chance there will be. So we just have to ask you, bottom line it, who do you think is going to win? Well, now I'll do the unfair thing to you, Clay, and hedge my answer. <laughs> I mean, polling indicates one thing, but that's not actually what happens because it's not a top line vote. So polling indicates that Labor is going to take it and might even have a chance to form a majority outright. But as I noted earlier in our conversation, polling indicated that for labor back in 2019. So this really is, I think, going to be down to the wire by, you know, seat by marginal seat about who ends up pulling them out and then able to form it. So uh, I'm not betting on the horse race. I'm just observing it. Excellent. So Charles Edel, thank you again for joining us. I appreciate it. And we'll be watching very carefully to see what happens, not just on Saturday, but also next week and going forward. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Clay. So let me do the three, two, one. My three takeaways, my two things I'm looking out for based on our conversation, and then my one sports topic. My three takeaways are that Australia is holding major elections over the weekend. They are particularly significant because it could be the first time that uh, a Labour Party has a prime minister for almost a decade. Second, Australia's economy has been suffering from high inflation and, as Charles told us, a skyrocketing housing prices. So this newly elected prime minister will have their work cut out for them. And third, the relationship between China and Australia has been rocky. And so we will have to see whether or not it continues to be rocky under whichever party wins, while at the same time, the relationship between the United States has been very, very positive. Will that stay the same? The two things I am looking out for, the one that we just talked about at the end, which is U.S. President Joe Biden will be in Tokyo for a quadrillennial security dialogue, the Quad, which is an alliance between the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. That's on Tuesday. So we'll see which party shows up to be the representative for Australia. And the second will be, will the relation, how will the relationship with China change under a Labour Party? My one sports topic today is inspired by a letter, actually. It was a letter written by Tariq Cohen, who is an American football running back who previously played for the Chicago Bears. 
Cohen recently wrote a letter to my younger self on a website that's called the Players Tribune, where he warns his younger self, pre-college younger self, about the perils he will face in his young adult life. And that most of the hardships that he will experience will take place off of the football field, not on the football field. My first point is I recommend reading this very moving letter. As I was reading it, I reflected on something about the side of sports that we sometimes overlook, which is issues about mental health and dealing with your family. We understand if an athlete needs to sit out because he's torn or she is torn their ACL, but no one thinks about an athlete needing to take a step back for the sake of their mental health or just to focus on their family. The attitude we sometimes as fans think about is, well, suck it up or play through it, and you, you can deal with your family after the game is over. I'd like to think that this stigma is changing with recent revelations made by such amazing champions as U.S. Olympic gymnast Simone Biles, the great Japanese tennis star Naomi Osaka, or the U.S. swimmer Michael Phelps, who have all stated and revealed their struggles with mental health issues. Cohen's letter is a callback to his younger self to focus on his family, who have suffered terrible tragedies while he has been succeeding at football which has clearly put a burden on his mind, whether it is guilt or just excess pressure on him as he's playing his game and trying to do the best he can. It reminds me that when we see athletes who accomplish things that we can only dream about, and they seem to almost be superhuman, that they can overcome obstacles that, again, we can barely even comprehend. In the end, though, they're just people, people with family problems, people with mental problems that have to deal with those issues. Unfortunately, I'd like to lastly note this week that Tariq Cohen, who's been trying to make a comeback because of physical injuries, tore his Achilles heel. That's an injury that's a very serious injury, and it is much more known among top athletes. And so all I can say is I'm wishing him a speedy recovery and, again, thank him for his letter for opening my own eyes. That's it for today's episode. Again, I want to thank Charles Edel for enlightening us on the Australian elections. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Current Account. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at IIF.com. Please make sure to tune in next Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Spotify. Thanks for listening.